just wanted to give a token of our appreciation. We live in a culture, I think, that diminishes the role of fathers. It diminishes the importance of family. Uh, and we're coming in the opposite spirit to honor fathers, to honor men and their contribution to what's happening here in the kingdom, in the church. We need dads. We need men with fathers' hearts. Uh, 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 scripture talks about how in the last days God will turn the hearts of fathers back to children and children back to fathers. And we need people who operate not just as natural fathers but spiritual fathers in the faith. Uh, Timothy said uh, of Paul that it was his father in the faith. Paul said of Timothy he was his true son in the faith. And so we're going to honor men uh, and their contribution here uh, to this community. So thank you. Uh, for being a part. In a moment, we're going to receive the tithe uh, and the offering on the screen behind me. It would be an opportunity for you to text to give uh, as well. We want to thank those of you who've stood with us over the last number of months. We have faced unprecedented challenges, uh, but God has proven faithful every step of the way. And so thank you for being a part of what this community has evolved into. We couldn't do it without you, and, and, and frankly, wouldn't want to even if we could. You are a valuable part of the family uh, here. One of the ways that we worship, one of the ways that we engage in faithful Christ followership is through the discipline of our finances. Scripture says this, that where your treasure is, there also is your heart. And so we believe that there's a God-given responsibility for believers who are committed to a house to invest things like time, talent, and treasure. It's one of the ways that we enter into ongoing discipleship and uh, development. Uh, and, and we're just uh, excited to, to, to be able to partner with God uh, in these uh, following ways. You know, there's been some talk uh, uh, with all the different things that are happening in our world today. We've got uh, pandemics and plagues and social movements in the streets and all sorts of different things that are all kind of colliding into one kind of grand historical moment for the church. And I just think the way that we steward our here and now is either going to set us up for influence in the next season or it's going to set us up for a deficit in the next season. And so we want to be people who invest wisely with our intellect, with our heart, with our treasure, with the things that God has given us. And as we steward this season well, you know, nothing surprises God. Um, I, I think God experiences emotion, but I don't think surprise is one of them. Do you know, like, not even your sin surprises God? Like, would you make a mistake? He's not in heaven going, I never saw that coming. Wow, whoa. No, he already factored in all your stupidity. Like, when he was making you, he factored it in. And some of you got an extra scoop, two or three. And, and some of you have been adding extra scoops yourself. But like your depravity doesn't surprise God. Your calling, your gifting doesn't surprise God. The moment that our world is in doesn't surprise God. He's not shocked. He's not up in heaven having a panic attack trying to figure out who he's going to call. He's put his calling on you. He's put his calling on us. <laughs> we could have been born anytime, anywhere, any place, but we happen to be here. Which tells me two things. Number one, God has a sense of humor. Number two, God is invested and interested in you being a part of the change that you're praying for. Some people are like, man, I just wish pursuit would be more friendly. All right, smile. Be a part of the change. Talk to your neighbor. Shower. Invite a friend. Oh, God, I just wish you would just do all these things and just, eh. <laughs> Be a part of this thing. And so that's what we encourage people to do. We're growing together. We're building together. And we're going to see his kingdom come in the Northwest. We're already seeing it. And we're going to see it even more. We live during the time of greatest kingdom transition that there's ever been. Why do you think there's so much shaking happening right now? It's birth pains. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. It's birth pains. As the world is flexing for what God's about to do next. Why do you think there's a wave of sickness right now? Because there's a wave of healing coming. Why do you think there's a wave of unrest right now? Because there's a wave of peace coming, right? Everything that Jesus does authentically, the enemy does inauthentically. For he has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life and in life that you would have abundant life. And so don't, don't miss the moment. Don't misjudge the moment that you're in. Don't get so overwhelmed with the size of your problems. The mountains still melt like wax in his presence. And so that's why we're a house of presence. People ask me, are you a purpose-driven church? No, we're a presence-driven church because the church doesn't exist for you. It exists for him. 
well, I didn't like today's worship set. That's okay. We weren't worshiping you. It's not built for you. It's built for him. We invite people in because we want people to engage. I want people from all stripes, all backgrounds, all denominational uh, affiliations. We want people to feel right at home. But if we ever miss the message of church, we will turn the gospel into a me-focused religion instead of a Jesus-focused relationship. It's all about me. It's all about me. Where's the comment box? It's all about me. It's all about what I like, when I like, how I like. It's all about me. Jesus goes, no, actually, the, the church is all about me. In the church, Paul tells Ephesus that we hold the mystery of Christ. In the church, is built for him. We're after his presence. You get to the presence, you get everything else. You don't get to the presence, it don't matter what you get. This is not a TED talk with the name Jesus thrown in three times to make you feel better. That's not this. We're all in on Jesus. And if he doesn't show up, we're all sunk. That's why he is the foundation, the stone that the builders rejected, who's become the chief cornerstone of our faith. The one we tried to kill, but death couldn't hold him. That Jesus is why this church exists. The church is not just some more nuanced political organization. Figuring out a way to talk about cultural issues in a way that impresses our friends so that we can build influence. We have built altars to influence and missed out on presence. And when you stand before God, you will not give account for how many Instagram followers you amalgamated, but whether or not you were faithful to the high God of call, the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Got people running around so scared of their own shadow, capitulating to every nuanced sociological construct, leaving people more confused than they were when they walked in because we've missed out on the focus. The focus is Jesus. The focus is Jesus. And you can get everything else, but if you don't get Jesus, you've gained the world and lost your soul. And if there is anything that describes the state of the evangelical church today, is it's a lot of guys who've gained a lot of things, but they missed out on their soul. They've gained buildings and influence and book deals, but they missed out on their soul. They've gained influence and followership and invites, but they've missed out on their soul. Remember, friend, the center of the gospel is not your self-fulfillment, it's your self-denial. For unless a man deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> And we have sold people a low-cost gospel, and it's become a no-effect religion. <laughs> Nothing in your life's got to change. Just post a hashtag Jesus every once in a while, and everything's good. <laughs> Friend, he comes, you bid and die, <laughs> that you may truly live. This is the gospel. It's so much more radical than we've ever given it credit for. It confronts all of our religious presuppositions. It causes us to lower the political tribal affiliation flags that we love to wave. It confronts our deepest held desires and our most closely kept fears. This gospel so radically invites us into transformation and we have sold ourselves short on a cultural watered down message that misses the mark. Oh, Jesus is so much more radical than we've given him credit for. And he invites he invites you into Romans 12 followership. That you would offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. Why? For this is your reasonable service. <laughs> That's reasonable. It's not even radical Christianity. It's just reasonable. Paul says, this is reasonable. Give everything you have to Jesus. Burn for him for the rest of your life. Give everything you have over to him. That's reasonable. Man, we be, I don't even know. What are we, are we taking an offering? I don't even, this ain't even about offering. I just, I'm trying to, I feel the spirit in this moment, but I'm just, I want to stir you. I want to challenge you. I want to stoke you this morning. Don't, don't sign up to make this kind of religious experience something that you get to check off of your box. So we feel good about our own taxonomic classification. Well, I'm a believer, so this is what I do. So much more. It's not a line you cross, it's a community you're invited into. 
that you would be radically transformed. It's not built for us, it's built for him. And as soon as we lose sight on what the church is built for, we begin to worship at the altar of our comfort and our needs. And God's invited us to more. It's about him. If I'll host his presence, his presence will do more in one moment in my life than a thousand sermons, a thousand hours of anything, in one moment in his presence. So my job as a pastor isn't to chew up food and spit it into your mouth. It's to create an environment that hosts the presence and then invite you to get into the presence and allow his presence to do its best work in your life. And so if you ever see me up here and sometimes you're like wondering, like, I wonder if Russell's confused about what to do next. You're absolutely right, I am. Because it's not my job to manufacture an outcome for you. It's to invite his presence to do its best work in your life. Well, at my last church, you know, we worshiped for 20 minutes, and the pastor spoke for eight minutes, and we sat, and it, I get that, man, but go back. But here, look, my heart is to get after the presence. And you can tell when you get into the presence. You can tell once you go past the outer court into the inner court. You can tell when you get into the holy of holies. You can tell when you get into a place where, where he is high and lifted up and the train of his robe begins to fill the temple and the cherubim and the seraphim begin to fly back and forth and the coal from heaven touches your lips and all of a sudden you're in a, you're in a sanctified, consecrated... Oh, you can tell! <laughs> we just want to hit the fast-forward button to get it done and over because i got a barbecue to go to. Me too! <laughs> And we're going to get there, and it's going to be okay. But just for a moment, the one whose eyes burn like fire. He's gazing at the church. And we're so busy on our phones, we miss out on his gaze. And the eyes that burn like fire are staring at the soul of the American church and challenging us. What do you want more? Your comfort or my presence. <laughs> and I guess for me, I'm going to cast my lot in the direction of his presence. I guess for me, whether the world goes with me or not, I'm going to chase his presence for the rest of my life. Because there's nothing that satisfies like living water and living bread. There is nothing that challenges you like an open door that invites you in. And friend, this is our destiny. This is our moment. This is our hour. This is our invitation. all of a sudden you get in the presence and, and, you, and you can't even quantify what's happening with human words because it's not a human experience. But what does it say of the disciples in the New Testament? They weren't eloquent in speech, but even the leaders of cities said, these men have been with Jesus. All of a sudden you get in the presence and you might not pronounce all the words right and you get a little confused on the Greek and the Hebrew and Something gets out of order and you forget to make an announcement when you get in the presence. All of a sudden, he begins to do things that no language can describe. Only the Spirit can speak in groans and utterances. You just know all of a sudden, unforgiveness just left. Bitterness just left. Depression just lifted. Anxiety just broke. Stress just broke. Sickness just left your body. All of a sudden, resentment just went. All of a sudden, you can't even describe it, but you just know, I came in carrying something on my shoulders, but now it's at his feet. I didn't even ask for prayer, but his presence did its best work in my life. Fred, that's what I want to invite you into, the beauty and the chaos and the mystery of Christ's followership. I want to invite you into a place where words fail because you can't describe it. You just see the chaos and the confusion and, 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 and the restlessness. And, and all of a sudden you get in his presence and it's like his words still calm my storms. All of a sudden his, his work, he just... 
He just began to do something in your heart. He just, he just began to do something in your life. All of a sudden, out of your innermost being comes rivers of living water. Things that you thought were dead and buried and gone and forgotten. Dreams that you thought were deceased. All of a sudden, one word, one breath, one glance, one look. And, and then those things begin to spring unto new life. You, you find yourself like the woman at the well coming for water. And he offers you something alive. And, and friend, in his presence, all of a sudden, these things begin to matriculate in the deepest part of who you are. And, and you may not be able to explain it with words, but you know, I've touched the hem of his garment. There was virtue that flowed out. Something inside of me has changed, and that's what I'm inviting you into. This transformative process experience with Jesus. You just get to that place where you just say, just one look, just one glance, just one touch. Just get me to his presence. That's all I need. Cut a hole in the roof and drop me through. But, but if I could just get to his presence, I know I could lead different. I know I could leave. Just get me to his pride. I know I could. No, I've, I've done all the counseling. I've got all the therapy. I got all the advice. But now I need his presence. Just get me in the door and, and allow God to do his best work. <laughs> it's what we've been invited into. It's the open door. It's the open door on the island of Patmos. It's the words of the Father that John hears, come up higher, Fred, come up higher, Fred, come up higher, come up higher out of boilerplate religion. Come out, come up higher out of cultural Christianity. Come up higher out of loveless, powerless TED Talks. Friend, come up higher, come up higher. Be invited into his presence in the place where his glory dwells. And all of a sudden, just in the church and the gathering of the saints, things begin to change, things begin to happen. I can't describe it, but something happened in my life, Pastor. I can't, I can't describe it, but I've tasted and I've seen that he's good. And once you taste and you see that he is good, you find yourself coming back to the banqueting table where the lamb is the guest of honor because you know that what he offers doesn't run dry. Can't you sense in this moment? Can't you sense that God is doing something bigger in this moment? We've, we, we, we tend to miss it because the news is so loud and opinions are so loud and we get given to chaos and confusion and war and rumors of war and famine and pestilence and plagues. And yet in the moment is the still small voice of God that pierces through the thunder and speaks to us in the cave and says, I am still with you. I am still your God. You are not alone. There are thousands who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. I will be your God if you will be my people and this is a moment friend not just for our church but for the church it's a moment for us to say it's, it's a moment for us to say there's a reason why streets are on fire it's because churches aren't there's an invitation for us to enter in there's an invitation for us to come up higher and to say God we're centering back around to this idea that this church is for you and what we're after is your presence it's a moment it's a moment when church historians look back on this moment in a hundred years and say, man, there was a start that God used the calamity of culture to jumpstart the church. This is the moment. This is the moment. This is the threshing floor. This is the wheat versus the chaff, the sheep versus the goats. This is the moment. We're going all in on Jesus, all in on Jesus, all in on Jesus. Come on, would you just lift your hands to a holy God all across this room? God, we say, do the work of the refiner's fire. God, do the work of the refiner's fire in our life. God, we say, relight the fire on the altar of our hearts. We say, God, do what only you can do. We say, God, do your best work in our lives. We don't give you part of us. We don't give you part of our family or part of our influence. We say, God, we desire to be consumed by you. And we say, if you will be our God, we will return to you in heart and in deed and in worship. If you will be our God, we will be your people. If you will be the cloud by day and the fire by night, we will be your people out of the wilderness into the promise. And God, we pray that your presence would be so centralized to who we are that nothing could move us from a desperate plea that says take the world but give me Jesus and God that's our plea that's our hunger that's our desire in this hour just give us Jesus just give me Jesus just give me Jesus I don't need your opinions just just give me Jesus
Maybe on this Father's Day, we hear the Father inviting us back, inviting us back home, so easily gone astray, but still receiving the invitation of the Father. Maybe today is that day for you. No, I know you don't deserve it. No, I know you didn't earn it. No, I know you don't feel qualified. But it's not about that in this moment. There's an invitation from the Father. There's a dispensation of grace. There's an hour, a day, a minute of invitation. In fact, Scripture says if you would hear His voice, do not harden your heart. If you would hear Him knocking, open the door. Friend, this is not just in a salvation sense. It is a return to the centrality of Spirit-filled living. This idea that we need Him more this hour than we've ever needed Him before. We have not graduated out of a spiritual poverty that says, I need Jesus. God, do your best work. Give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. Oh, man. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I don't know what to do. God, we take serious at this moment admonition of 2 Chronicles 7 that if God's people, if God's people, if God's people would turn, if God's people would repent, if God's people would pray, God would turn and heal our land. So God, we come back to you in our hearts. We come back to you in our minds. We come back to you in our churches. And we ask, God, that you would turn and heal our land. That in judgment, you would remember mercy. God, we need it like never before. Help us, help us, help us. Jesus, then. Well, maybe we should take it off. Uh, if you came prepared to give, why don't you just come to the altar? Let's give today. Well, welcome to Pursuit. I know uh, some of you are probably wondering uh, if it's your first time today, what you walked into, and this is church, it's not always like this, but sometimes it is, and we don't apologize. So anyways, um, thanks for being here. Uh, it is uh, uh, Father's Day, and I'm going to begin with a story uh, that uh, I think I've told probably every Father's Day since we planted, uh, but it's made an impact on me, and I think it will make an impact on you, because I think it best encapsulates the gospel's message. There's a Spanish story of a father and a son who had become estranged, and the son ran away, and the father set off to find him. He searched for months to no avail, and finally, in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. And the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you. Your father. On Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up standing in front of a newspaper office looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. I think all of Scripture could be summed up by this statement. Humanity is desperately searching to belong, and Jesus is constantly inviting us home. In John 11, we find a familiar passage of Scripture. And in this passage of Scripture, Jesus performs what will be one of his most talked about miracles in his three and a half years of, 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 of public ministry. And it is uh, the raising uh, of uh, his friend Lazarus from the dead. I, I think sometimes uh, in Scripture we have trouble um, allowing the humanity of Jesus to peer through the pages. And by that I mean this. Sometimes we view him uh, uh, only through the construct of being the son of God, which he absolutely is. But scripture says he is the son of God and the son of man. And sometimes we have this Jesus who has become kind of this stale, almost Greek deity that's like emotionless and very stoic and very not involved in the affairs of humanity, who never experienced emotion, who never experienced pain, trauma, turmoil, who never experienced a difficult moment in his life. And, 
and, and, and, and that Jesus uh, uh, becomes hard for us to go to in times of trouble. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, whoever wrote it, some believe it's the apostle Paul, uh, Paul talks about Jesus being our high priest who is familiar with our temptation and our suffering. Meaning this, that this Jesus that we serve knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to experience rejection. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow. And when those things happen in our life, you've got two choices to make. I will either run to him or I will run away from him. I think sometimes one of the failures of, 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 of preaching, and I'm sure I've committed this error uh, as well, so I'd include myself in this critique, but I think sometimes in the way that we have constructed the gospel, uh, we have given it to people almost like as a lottery ticket. Like if you say this prayer or attend this church or come to this conference or given this offering, you'll never have problems again for the rest of your life. And that's like really awesome as long as you don't have problems. But the problem is, is about 24 hours later, 36 hours later, you run into a conflict and it begins to challenge the narrative that you have been bought into. And so for us, I'd rather sell people uh, not on a low, costless Christianity, but this idea that when you give Jesus everything, what you're giving him is not just your future, but it's your past. It's your hopes, fears, dreams, desires, tragedy, sin. It's all of the things uh, that, that have conceptualized who you are up until this point. You are giving them to Jesus. And when you face a, a valley of disappointment, you, you begin to understand that Jesus experienced that too. And if, if he experienced those things, he's a person that I can run to and lean on in this season. In John 11, we see, I think, in special way, the humanity of Jesus shine through. When Jesus saw her weeping, John 11, verse 33, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? Talking about Lazarus. And they said, come and see, Lord. They replied, and Jesus wept. And verse 35 of John 11 is the shortest verse in all of scripture. Jesus wept. For some of you, it might be the only scripture verse you ever memorized. <laughs> Jesus wept. Let me stop for a moment and just interject some commentary into this passage. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, knows exactly what's about to happen to Lazarus. He knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows the results. He's not gonna hope or beg or somehow manipulate the Father to do this miracle. Jesus knows. And even though he knows that Lazarus is gonna be raised from the dead, he stops for a moment to join himself to the pain of Mary and Martha. Let me say this, empathy doesn't require a backstory. It just requires you to stop long enough to bear someone else's burdens, feel someone else's pain, and in doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus knows what will happen next, but he takes time to experience the gravity of someone else's pain. And if you want to know what compassion looks like, it's that. I think if there's something that God could deliver you from in this season, it's the need to give advice in the midst of other people's pain. Ah, well, hey, let me give you the 12 steps how I recovered when my parents passed away. Your advice doesn't change the world. And most of the time, people don't even want it. What they really want is somebody to mourn when they mourn and rejoice when they rejoice and process when they process. And when they ask for your advice, it serves as an invitation to offer in humility ideas and principles that may be effective for them. But sometimes in an effort to feel important, we become everybody else's professional advice giver. You ever been in the middle of a story and you're just trying to get through the story? You've got one person in your circle of friends who's always got to interject a similar story that's way worse than yours. And you're like, this isn't the tragedy Olympics. <laughs> Nobody wins a gold medal for having the worst story. But if just for a moment I could share my story, and then after I'm done sharing my story, you could share your story, then maybe we could develop this thing called friendship. <laughs> but we have this thing that rises up in us, right? where it's like immediately we go into some sort of professorial mode where we just have to give like advice. Hey man, let me, yeah, you want some advice? 
I don't think anybody's ever responded to that question with a genuine yes in all of human history. You want some advice on how you should live life and how you should do these things? And like Jesus in John 11 knows what's about to happen. And instead of ruining the surprise, he sees Mary and Martha in pain. And he says, I will join myself to that. What do you think ingratiated Mary and Martha so much to this Jesus figure? Jesus doesn't show up at Lazarus's tomb and go, oh, you guys never guess what I'm about to do next. Why are you crying? Come on. Watch what I'm about to do. It's going to be great. He goes to Mary and Martha and he goes, oh, this is where you're at? Let me join myself to you in this moment because we're going to experience pain together. Watch. And then we're going to experience rejoicing together. Because one of the chief ethics of God is to experience life together with his people. And God could have offered the concept of salvation in any way that he wanted. It could have been this outside exterior force, this sign in the heavens, this cataclysmic cosmic event, and all of a sudden a, a screen with words popped up in the sky and everybody said a prayer and they were saved. But God sends Jesus, the incarnation, to become like us, to be with us, together with us. And that is the beauty of the gospel message, is that Jesus joins himself to us in the midst of our journey. In fact, scripture says this of the salvation process, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see him always joining, whether it's the lepers, whether it's the downtrodden, whether it's the woman caught in the act of adultery, Jesus is always joining people where they're at and then elevating them with him to a higher level. The woman who's caught in the act of adultery, Jesus digs down into the dirt, kneels down into her purview, lifts up her head, says, I don't accuse you. Where are your accusers? This is the Jesus we serve. Watch this. The Jews said, see how he loved him? That was nice. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Now you understand why Jesus said things like this, deliver me from this wicked and perverse generation. <laughs> and Jesus is here, he's just trying to be human. He's just trying to join somebody in the midst of their pain. And you've got one group of people who go, man, that was so great, so kind, so loving. Yeah, go Jesus. You got this other group of people, these religious hypocrites. And they look at him, they go, oh, yeah, can heal the eyes of the blind, but can't raise this dead man. Interesting. And can I tell you, friend, this important point. Even Jesus isn't safe from the opinions of the crowd. And could you recognize for a moment that generally the loudest opinions come from the laziest people? If even Jesus wasn't enough for the critics, why do you spend so much time trying to please other people in order to gain their approval? Jesus, perfect, sinless. His only crime was healing their people, setting them free from their sin, elevating people who'd been disenfranchised by the social constructs of that day. That was his crime, and they killed him for it. And now Jesus is weeping with Mary and Martha. And even he isn't safe from the opinions of the crowd. One of the things that's so important important about the role of fathers in, in our world today is that one of the things that fathers help impart in our life are things like identity, affirmation, validity, security. And for all of us, whether we had that as children in our family unit or whether we found that later through spiritual moms and dads who poured into us, that is a need that we have. And can I tell you that when you come into security of receiving validation and affirmation from the Father, it frees you from the addiction to cultural opinions. When somebody calls you something, says you're something, tries to besmirch your character, tries to lie on you, tries to do all these things, when you feel like you've been affirmed by the Father, you don't even have to fight back. I man, the Father knows. He's the judge of the nations. You're just a judge on Facebook. He knows. You think you have a platform. He owns the nations. He, he's, it's okay. 
I'm not saying you live arrogant, you don't live, you know, taking advice and other things from other people, but I'm saying so much of us, even older, whether you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, we have this need in our heart. And until it gets addressed, you will seek it from other people who can't truly provide it. You'll get into marriage and look for it from your spouse. You'll get into relationships and, 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 and you'll find yourself unequally yoked, looking for things from people that they can't provide themselves. And when you receive validation and affirmation from the Father, it empowers you to walk in a way that honors the God-given calling on your life. Now watch what happens in verse 38. Jesus, once more, deeply moved, comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. He said, take away the stone. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Remember, they didn't have embalming or anything like that in those days. And Jesus said, did I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people stand, standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Let me stop there for a moment. Jesus, in this context, does not tell Mary and Martha that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he does say something that I think is very interesting and also challenging for our developmental journey on discipleship, and it's this. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Do you know that the glory of God often will take you through valleys of disappointment prior to getting to mountains of breakthrough? That is part of the journey of seeing God's glory. I thought God promised me breakthrough. He did. But, but you also probably walk through a little hell first because God is faithful at both elevations. He's not just the God of the mountaintop. And so for us, when we see Jesus communicating to Mary and Martha in this way, it's almost encouraging to us. Oh, this is part of the definition of what glory looks like. See, I thought glory looked a little different. I thought glory looked like going into every room and being loved and appreciated by everybody who was there. Now, I thought that this journey was going to be a little different, a little easier, a little better, a little more comforting for my ego than it actually has been. And Jesus says, watch the ingredients of glory. The ingredients of glory take Jesus to a tomb where a man's been dead for four days. Even his sisters are saying, look, this isn't a good idea. Like, we've seen you do miracles, but even this isn't a good idea. And Jesus has an affinity for graveyards. He shows up in the Gadarenes. There's a man who'd been chained up in the tombs. He cuts himself day and night, screaming. Jesus arrives on the shore. The demoniac runs to his feet and falls down on his knees. And the Bible says, and he worships. By the time Jesus is done, the man is clothed in his right mind and totally set free. And it's all a part of the narrative of glory that God constructs for his people. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet, watch, still wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Fred, let me say this to you today. We are free, but we are also being made free. See, on the cross, I was declared free, forgiven, redeemed, holy, righteous, new. At the cross, as Jesus gave up his spirit and said, it is finished, he was declaring that by my blood, whom the sun sets free, is actually free. I know that if you're anything like me, you've been resurrected out of the tomb, but every once in a while, you recognize that you still got some grave clothes, an old mindset toxic relationship, a bad habit, a proclivity that's not healthy, a way of adjudicating the events of life around you that doesn't honor Christ as the centrifugal force of eternity. There's all things in our life that we recognize from time to time. You ever have like a five-second moment where you feel like, man, I've really got this Christian thing figured out. And as soon as you have that thought, what happens? <laughs> Somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're saying every word in the book and, and the Lord reminds you, you ain't as developed as you think you are. You got a pursuit bumper sticker on the back of your car. You're cussing people out. You're just, as soon as you feel like you got this thing figured out, it's like the Lord reminds you, not in a guilt trip way, because by the way, nothing motivated by guilt is sustainable. Guilt is not from the Father. Shame is not from the Father. It's just not, and it's not a motivating force in life. 
And so if you walk away from a church environment or, 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 or from a conversation by which you feel like guilt and shame is coming on your life, one of the most important things that you can do is just take a moment, stop, pray, break it off of you because it's not your identity. You know, when, when you deal with sin, even habitual sin, the most damaging nature and part of sin is not the act itself. It's the way that the devil makes you feel after you've done the act itself. Because the devil, who is the father of lies, loves to tell you that you are what you've done. And the gospel tells us that we are not, in fact, what we have done. We are what Christ has done on our behalf. And that's why it's good news. Because you may have fallen into sexual sin, but you are not your sexual sin. You may have given in to a temptation, but you are not that temptation. You may have dealt with all sorts of different things in your life, and, 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 and I know sometimes we get mad at people because they sin differently than us, but friend, we all got drama and trauma that we're working through. And can I tell you, I'm just not going to be angry at people who sin differently than me. <laughs> And, and I'm so glad that I am not the sum total of my worst moments. And the next time that you want to criticize or be mad at somebody over their worst moment, just be glad that yours isn't broadcast on TV. So for us, we recognize that the gospel of grace frees us, not as a license to sin, but as an invitation into bondage-breaking, life-giving relationship with Him. I fell down, I made a mistake, but it's not who I am. In fact, the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Let me end with a story from history that I hope would be that it would encourage you today. In 1854, there was a piece of legislation signed into law by then President Franklin Pierce. I didn't even know there was a President Franklin Pierce until yesterday. In 1854, he signed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Pierce was a known racist, segregationist, who adamantly opposed the abolitionist movement to free the slaves. Now, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was controversial because it would open the door for the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. But later on in that same year, a new political party would be founded. And one of the ideological tenets of that new political party would be freedom for slaves. In 1860, a man by the name of Abraham Lincoln would become that party's nominee for president. And although he won the presidential election that year, 10 out of the 15 southern states didn't cast one ballot for him. In fact, out of all the states in the south, he only won three out of 993 counties. The nation was divided. In what's now referred to as the House Divided Speech, President Lincoln would quote the Gospel of Mark saying this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now I believe that this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect this union to be dissolved. I do not expect this house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will either become all one thing or all the other. Pro-slavery South was so upset when Lincoln won the presidential election that a month after taking office, the Civil War would begin. It would be the deadliest conflict in U.S. history, claiming the lives of over a million Americans, both soldiers and civilians. You know the history. Eventually, the Union would win. Slavery would end. The Emancipation Proclamation, maybe one of the most profound political documents of the American experiment, would be issued, and slaves would be freed. And a month before the Civil War would officially end in 1865, President Lincoln would be assassinated by a Confederate spy named John Wilkes Booth while attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. After the Civil War, the U.S. Constitution would be amended 
to adopt what are called the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. These amendments would guarantee freedom for slaves, freedom to vote, freedom to associate. Yesterday, the nation celebrated a holiday called Juneteenth. It's a holiday that commemorates the freeing of slaves in Texas. Now, let me explain why this is interesting. Although the Emancipation Proclamation was officially issued in 1862, it wouldn't be until 1865, two and a half years later, that 250,000 slaves in Texas would be set free. Why? Well, Texas was further away from the action of the Civil War. It took time for word to travel. It took time for policy to be enacted. And for two and a half years, although slaves had legally been set free from Lincoln, they ex experientially were still in bondage. And on June 19th, 1865, a Union general by the name of Gordon Granger rode into the city of Galveston, Texas and publicly declared in the Civic Square, all slaves are free. Friend, I hope you see the spiritual crossover in this moment today. Jesus, through the cross, rides into the heart of humanity and declares what we now know to be true what every human heart has longed to hear. All slaves are now free. Sometimes it takes us a while to catch up with the reality of what Jesus has already declared to be true. You know what Jesus has declared about your life on the cross 2,000 years ago? He said you were valuable. He said you were his. He said you were redeemed. He said you were bought out from under the cross, under the curse, purchased by his blood. He said that you would be set free. He said that you would be empowered, seated in heavenly places, that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. These are the things that the cross has declared. And for some of us, it's taken a while for that message to reach our hearts. But when a father shows up and makes a declaration, it changes the experience of your life. And through the Holy Spirit and the witness of the church, this God in heaven declares to us today, all slaves are now free. Which means this, you and I are invited to catch up with what has already legally been declared to be true about our lives. Juneteenth is the celebration that two and a half years after a legal document was produced to free the slaves, a quarter million black slaves found freedom through a proclamation. And the cross for us as believers is a reminder that there is a message that is reverberating in the heart of every individual who has ears to hear and eyes to see, reminding us that who we are is not what we've done, it's not what we've experienced, it's not even what we've been through. It's not found in political sociological constructs, it's not found in the narrative of the news, it's not found in any other source except the name of Jesus and his declaration over my life and over your life graduates us in to not just a freedom in word, but a freedom in deed. It's not just a scriptural concept. It's not just something that I hope to obtain. It's the inheritance for every believer this morning. All slaves are now free. Now, I know you're out of the tomb. I know. I know you're out of the tomb. Join the club. But if for a moment you can look objectively at your life, could you recognize that from time to time there's some odor, there's some grave clothes, there's some cloths covering the face. 
Today, God, by his spirit, would issue a declaration to you. Loose him and let him go. Take off the bandages. Take off those bondages. Take off those grave clothes. For weeping, I'll give you rejoicing. For bondage, I'll give you freedom. For addiction, I'll give you breakthrough. I know what the grave has tried to do to you, but it has lost its claim based on what Christ has declared. And sometimes it takes a while for that message to catch up with our reality. But I believe on this Father's Day, it's a word from God. All slaves are now free. Watch. All curses are now broken. All bondage is now destroyed. The cross is more powerful than we've given it credit for. And today, 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 we come alive in a fresh freedom from our Father. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning? Let me pray for you and then we'll dismiss. Father, we love you. God, we honor you. God, we thank you that in this moment you're working in the hearts of those under the sound of my voice, watching on this broadcast, watching the replay. God, we, we, we avail ourselves to you. We say, God, come and do what only you can do. Come and do the heart surgery that man can't see, but God knows we so desperately need. And God, we, we give you permission today to invite us into greater levels of freedom, into greater levels of, of sanctification, into greater levels of righteousness, into greater levels of Christ followership. God, we commit to leaving our old ways. We commit to leaving our old mindsets. We commit to leaving our old religion. God, we, we pray today that there will be an urgency to respond to an invitation to come up higher into another level of freedom for whom the sun sets free is actually experientially free. So God, we unroll those grave clothes. We unwrap those bandages. We take off those cloths. Today, we're clothed in new robes, new identities, new perspectives, that the hope of glory would fill our heart. In Jesus' name.